Howdy, howdy, y'all. Welcome to CIA Files, True Stories of U.S. Intelligence. I'm Topher M. Ford, along with Brandon Givens. Brandon, how's life? Well, thanks for asking. I'm doing pretty well. I woke up at uh, 3.30 this morning to go pick my wife up from the airport, and uh, she's got jet lag right now, so she's, she's asleep. And, but yeah, it's overall been a pretty good day. And yourself, how are you doing there? Oh, I'm good. Uh, too busy to enjoy my coffee, but that's just how things are sometimes. So now we're getting into the really intense part of the George White story. This is where the infamous project MK Ultra enters the picture. Yeah, Chris, this episode's pretty pretty neat. It's got a lot to offer. We've got drugs, sex, kink, not just sex, kink sex, and um, paranoid paranoia uh, of hypnotism mind control along with a doctor doing experiments on people that enjoys folk dancing and making his own yogurt and living in a sustainable way i mean it's pretty intriguing stuff i mean we it's, the truth is stranger than fiction really stands out here Okay, this is the second half of the story of George Hunter White. I was too rough for their league. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA Files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. We were Ivy League, white, middle class. We were naive, totally naive about this. And he felt pretty expert. He knew the whores, the pimps, the people who brought in the drugs. He was a pretty wild man. From Steve Kinzer's Poisoner-in-Chief. White was a son of a bitch, but he was a great cop. He made that fruitcake Hoover look like Nancy Drew. The LSD, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Write this down. Espionage, assassination, dirty tricks drug experiments, sexual encounters, and the study of prostitutes for clandestine use. That's what I was doing when I worked for George White at the CIA. Ira Feldman, U.S. Intelligence Officer. George Hunter White had just been fired from his post in the House Un-American Activities Committee when he was approached by CIA mad scientist Sidney Gottlieb. White was still working for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, but he always had extra time and energy to do some freelancing. Gottlieb needed assistance with his main project for the CIA, one of the most secret projects in American history, MK Ultra. I feel sleepy. Look at me, Martha. Keep looking into my eyes. You're tired, very tired. You want to sleep. I sleep, Martha. Now listen very closely. I have instructions for you. First, here is a gun. Put the gun in your handbag. When that clock chimes four times, you remove the gun from your handbag and shoot the woman through the head. In the early 20th century, a common horror movie trope, or even novel trope, was that of the magician or hypnotist who could control people. You had movies such as The Cabinet 
of Dr. Caligari that came out in 1920, The Magician in 1924, The Dark Tower in 1943, The Witching Hour in 1933, and Gaslight in 1944, which was pretty popular. And Orson Welles even got on this bandwagon with Black Magic in 1949. So there was this common thought that hypnotism or mind control could be possible. Well, Sidney Gottlieb figured that if somebody could be driven out of their mind, the mind could be placed with a new psyche, that of his design. When he found out about LSD, he thought he found the mind-altering drug he'd been searching for. He convinced the U.S. government to buy up the world's supply, which they did. He then went around like LSD claws, donating it to hospitals and research facilities for them to conduct experiments with. He wanted to see what it was and how it affected people. It didn't end there. The CIA also funded articles in, in Time magazine about psychedelic mushrooms in Mexico. They basically paid to raise awareness about mind-altering drugs. Their hope was to get more people to use them so they could indirectly learn about their usefulness towards mind control. Well, it half worked. Use of psychedelics skyrocketed. Gottlieb's experiments with LSD and other drugs had all been confined to clinical settings held under supervision of medical observers in controlled environments. But Gottlieb felt it was important to see the results of these drugs at work out in the world, in casual, real-life situations. But these experiments needed to be kept secret, and the subjects needed to be dosed without their knowledge in order to observe the full effects of the drugs. This job might as well have been custom-made for White. He had experience in drugging people for experiments during his time in the OSS. He loved drugs himself. He had few scruples when it came to committing acts of cruelty and violence. And perhaps most importantly, he had access to low-level criminals and other social outcasts, people who would never consider reporting anything done to them to law enforcement. As mentioned in Part 1, White often indulged in any sort of drugs he could find. So when Gottlieb introduced him to LSD, White jumped at the chance to take it for a spin. Albert Hoffman was a Swiss scientist who worked for a pharmaceutical firm named Sandoz. He was trying to find circulatory stimulants. In working with ergot, he isolated lysergic acid. He rubbed some in his eyes by accident and had a strange sensation. Okay, now, there's a theory that the witch hunts were based around people eating grain with the ergot fungus. People who ate bread with the fungus hallucinated or became paranoid. Maybe he knew that. Maybe not. But he became more curious and made a guinea pig of himself. He made and took what he thought was a small dose of LSD. But in reality, it was quite a lot. He had a pretty bad trip. Nonetheless, 
he thought it could be helpful in treating anxiety, and he does appear to be correct. It has reemerged as a drug of interest. In any event, Sandoz patented LSD for production. In 1952, White, along with CIA counterintelligence chief James Jesus Angleton, got together for drinks. They both had gin and tonics laced with LSD. Afterward, they ventured out into the world, going to a Chinese restaurant for dinner. According to White's diary, they were overcome with a laughing fit and never got around to eating their dinner. While Gottlieb was working to expand MKUltra, a power struggle was going on behind the scenes. Other government agencies, including the Office of Scientific Intelligence and the Office of Security, wanted control over this new project. This led to delays in kicking off the next phase of the program. This power struggle also held up White's acceptance into the CIA. Officials in Washington were reluctant to approve White to work with the agency. White believed he was a victim of elitists who didn't care for him. He wrote, A couple of crew-cut pipe-smoking punks had either known me or heard of me during the OSS days and decided I was too rough for their league and promptly blackballed me. White's approval took a year to come through. When he was finally cleared in 1953, Gottlieb gave him funds to get started. White made a deposit on a space at 81 Bedford Street in New York City, two neighboring apartments where he would bring unwitting subjects for LSD experiments. Once his lair was ready, White began searching for people to befriend and experiment on. Kinzer wrote that White would often introduce himself to people as Morgan Hall, an alias he'd created, complete with several different backstories. He posed alternately as a merchant seaman or a bohemian artist and consorted with a vast array of underworld characters, all of whom were involved in vice, including drugs, prostitution, gambling, and pornography. White and his wife, Teen, would throw parties at the rented apartment where they would secretly add LSD to their guests' drinks. White would take notes on people's reactions in his diary. His victims often included his own friends. One friend, an unwitting victim, Gilbert Fox, ran Vixen Press, a small publishing company that specialized in pulp fetish novels. In an interview with writer Douglas Valentine, Fox detailed how one experience caused him, his wife, and some visiting friends long-lasting mental damage. We were all boozing and smoking pot in those days, including George. And one night George gave us LSD. He slipped it to us secretly. Kai and Joe were visiting us at Christopher Street, and we went to the Whites. And afterwards, we went slumming around the lower village. It was snowing. We stopped the car on Cornelia Street, and the snow was red and green and blue, a thousand beautiful colors, and we were dancing in the street. Joe thought she had lace gloves up to her elbows. Then we went into a lesbian bar, but that freaked out Pat and Joe. Pat had trouble coming off the trip, and Joe later went wacko like Elliot's wife. And Joe eventually divorced Kai, too. I was angry at George for that. It turned out to be a bad thing to do to people, but we didn't realize it at the time. White and Teen once drugged Barbara Smith, a 19-year-old girl who they had met through Fox. Smith brought her 20-month-old baby with her to what was supposed to be a friendly, informal dinner. However, she, along with another woman who had joined them, would become victims of White's government-sanctioned torture. What happened to Smith that night is still a mystery, 
She never spoke of it to her husband or to anyone else that we know of. But soon after the incident, Smith spiraled into depression and paranoia. She left her husband and moved in with her parents. Her husband, Elliot Smith, later recounted how he found her when he visited her at her parents, hoping for reconciliation. When I got to her house, she was cowering in a corner. She thought the mafia was out to get her. Her parents were unable to cope with the problem, so on our psychiatrist's advice, I admitted her to Stony Lodge Hospital in December of 1958. White would also drug petty criminals, people involved in various forms of vice, including gambling, drugs, and prostitution. These were people who would never report the incident to the police because of their status as criminals. Doing so probably wouldn't be worthwhile anyway, as White had agreements with most of the people who might receive such reports, including people who worked in the NYPD medical department. During this time, Gottlieb kept close tabs on White's experiments. The two met regularly and despite their vastly different personalities, they became good friends. Gottlieb is kind of a fascinating character in that he's not really who you would expect to be the poisoner-in-chief. He was like, um, his parents were, were Orthodox Jewish immigrants, and he had a stutter and a club foot and a passion for folk dancing. You know, he tried to live a sustainable lifestyle. He raised his own goats and he made his own yogurt and you know, tried to have the eco-friendly household. He experimented with LSD. Um, he does seem to, in the end, regret a lot of what he did. Like Later in life, when he does retire, uh, he goes off to um, India and works with the lepers and, and travels the world and tries to help the poor and he does retire to Virginia, to his house in the woods with his goats and yogurt, living on his eco-friendly homestead. One of Gottlieb's favorite hobbies was folk dancing. He would famously show off the dances he had learned, and White would often learn these dances and join Gottlieb in performing for other people. At this point in history, paranoia over the creeping threat of communism was at an all-time high. This paranoia fueled the attitude among those in power in the U.S. that they needed to do whatever was necessary to stop what they saw as the scourge of Moscow's growing influence across the globe, especially in the Western Hemisphere. Paranoia of communists comes from a variety of angles. I mean, the, the revolutions in, in China and Russia were, were pretty bloody, and so no one in, no one in the U.S. would really want to want to live through that or see that happen. And the line between anarchist and communist was, was pretty hazy. You wouldn't think that would be the case because they seem to be quite different as far as um, ideologies go. I guess you may perhaps they ran in the same circles. And in the, in the 1880s up through um, the early 1900s, uh, anarchist were pretty, pretty active and committed a lot of acts of terrorism and assassinations. Um, McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist. Um, 
an immigrant who made anti-capitalist statements um, attempted to assassinate Franklin Roosevelt just before he was elected. And many of these, these anarchists were immigrants or first-generation immigrants. And you know, people could play, and nativists could play on that like xenophobia. And so, oh, here's, here's communism, and it's this, this foreign idea, and, you know, the, they're coming over, and they're terrorists, and, and there was also this fear that they had already infiltrated the country, or the communists had already infiltrated the country because, you know, the communists all fled the Nazis. So they fled the Nazis, and now they're in the U.S., and they're just like those anarchists, and they're everywhere, and then... The, there was a spy ring discovered, a Soviet spy ring, that had managed to leak information about the atomic bomb and uranium enrichment. And both, you know, like it was during World War II and after. And so it gave a little bit of credence to this, you know, fear that, oh my goodness, the Soviets, the communists, they're everywhere. They've already infiltrated the country. They, and if they could get information about uranium enrichment, why, what can they not get? I mean, they're everywhere. And then you add on top of that kind of the, the success that the Soviets were having in general. Right, so the U.S. has the brightest rocket scientists that Germany and the U.S. itself has to offer. And the Soviet Union suffered millions of deaths during the last two decades, and doing like Stalin's purges, and then the Nazi invasion, the aftermath, um, and yeah, just uh, the destruction of the infrastructure and that educated elite. So despite that, that setback in the 50s, uh, the communists seemed to be doing the impossible. They were besting the U.S. They launched the first satellite in space. They had the first person go to space who was this like handsome, charming fellow on top of it. And then in Cuba, there were these handsome and charismatic guerrilla leaders leading successful rebellions. So it's like they, they seem to be doing pretty well and advancing and winning. And that made people afraid. All right, you know how sometimes if, if people are... Um, they're afraid they're wrong, they might like overreact or get emotional. That might have been part of what was going on too. Like subconsciously, many Western leaders may have been fearful that, that they were wrong or mistaken. And if they weren't wrong or mistaken philosophically, they were at least worried they were going to lose because Soviet technology was advancing so quickly. Of course, the, the answer to beating the Soviets at their technological advancement was for the United States, in a very socialist way, to spend lots of tax dollars on research and development. Government and military officials, scared that communism posed an existential threat to Western values, felt that no actions were too extreme when it came to winning the Cold War. CIA Director Alan Dulles was convinced that the Russians and the Chinese were working on mind control programs of their own. Dulles assumed that the communists were conducting experiments on American prisoners, which he felt only made their own race to discover methods for mind control themselves 
that much more imperative. Leaders in the Pentagon and in the Army Special Operations Division were aware that the CIA was conducting experiments with LSD and other drugs on unwitting subjects, and they showed no interest in curtailing these experiments, even though such experiments violated the relatively new Nuremberg Code. During World War II, the Nazis were notorious for human experimentation. I mean, people were tortured in the name of science. So the Nuremberg Code was put into place to provide guidelines for human experimentation to make sure that medical research would not be a form of torture. You know, like at some point, someone, a human being, will need to take the vaccine or take the blood pressure medication to find out if it works. And there are steps along the way, but also essential rules for experimenting. Rule number one, voluntary consent is essential. You can't experiment on people without them knowing it. You can't, you can't spike someone's drink just to see what will happen. That's a big no-no. Um, you, you can't give um, someone like a blood pressure medication to see if it's effective without them knowing it. That's, that's wrong. Uh, the experiment should also avoid unnecessary suffering. And with MKUltra, like, suffering was the point. And the facilities need to be such that injury is extremely unlikely. The environment needs to be controlled. Um, the person conducting the experiment needs to be able to end the experiment if they believe someone is um, in danger of being harmed. And also, the subject should be free to end the experiment at any time which was simply not the case with, with this. It was like almost all the rules were violated. In 1955, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics transferred White to California, where he would run the Bureau's San Francisco office. Gottlieb took this as an opportunity to step up his clandestine experiments. He decided to add another element to White's experiments, sex. Gottlieb named this new setup Sub-Project 42. White, ever the creative writer, gave it a more colorful name. Operation Midnight Climax. White set up his pad at 225 Chestnut Street, an apartment on Telegraph Hill with a beautiful view of San Francisco Bay. He hired a friend to install hidden microphones disguised as electric outlets and tape recorders hidden in the walls. A CIA officer who once visited said the apartment, quote, was so wired that if you spilled a glass of water, you'd probably electrocute yourself. In 1977, the New York Times spoke to a man who lived in the apartment some years after the operation shuttered. He said that after he learned about his home's nefarious past, he looked behind a metal plate in his living room where he found hidden wires and two tape recorders. White set up an adjoining room where he could watch the experiments secretly. He sat behind a two-way mirror, almost always sitting, pants down, on a portable toilet, with a pitcher of martinis next to him. He even submitted an expense report for his potty. Among documents that the CIA later declassified is an expense report he filed on August 3, 1955, it includes this entry, one portable toilet, $25, 24 disposal bags, 
at $0.15 cents each, $3.60 to $28.60. The experiments conducted on Telegraph Hill were different from what White had been doing back in Greenwich Village. This time, he'd be combining drugs with sex to refine his interrogation techniques. White needed some help with this ambitious new task. He turned to newly retired intelligence officer Ira Feldman. After working overseas in Korea and Europe doing what author Steve Kinzer called bare-knuckle work, Feldman retired to California to raise chickens. White, however, had other plans. He called Feldman up to work in the Bureau of Narcotics. While there, Feldman did much of the same sort of work White himself had done, going undercover to track down drug traffickers. White eventually decided Feldman could be a valuable asset to Operation Midnight Climax. At first, Feldman was resistant to the idea of drugging unsuspecting Johns with a potent, mind-altering drug. But White convinced him by telling him this work was important to national security. Feldman, being heavily connected to San Francisco's world of vice, recruited the prostitutes who would help White carry out his experiments. These women would be paid $50 to $100 per session. Some of the women, addicted to heroin, would be paid in narcotics. The women would also be given a get-out-of-jail-free card. If they were arrested for prostitution, they could call White, who would arrange for their release. The pad was stocked with all manner of pornography, including magazines, books, and films. CIA officers would use these materials to train the prostitutes on specific methods for pleasing their johns, as well as how to drug them and how to coax sensitive information out of them. They were instructed to hang out with their johns for several hours after having sex and to treat them kindly. This would often cause the men to become more vulnerable, believing that the women actually cared for them beyond their sexual transaction. After a little time, conversation would turn to the John's work, which the women were trained to bring up casually. Feldman would instruct the women to pick up a specific individual who would be working on some government program. Then she was to see how much sensitive information she could get him to reveal. Feldman described this to a reporter. I says, honey, I want you to do a favor for me. And I says, I want you to pick up Joe Blow, take him to the apartment, and give him a blow job. And while he's there, I want you to ask him, hey, you know that airplane? How high does it fly? CIA psychologist John Gittinger later testified to the goals Gottlieb was working toward with Subproject 42 in order to refine knowledge of the best methods for using sex to gather intelligence. We were interested in the combination of certain drugs with sex acts. We looked at the various pleasure positions used by prostitutes and others. Some of the women, the professionals we used, were very adept at these practices. White didn't just use the apartment on Telegraph Hill for experiments, though. The pad always had a fully stocked bar, and White often brought fellow narcotics agents there to unwind after work. The pad became a constant source of disruption for neighbors who often reported the officers to the local police, complaining of late-night noise and men with shoulder-holstered guns chasing naked women through the street. Gottlieb eventually instructed White to expand operations, and White opened a second safe house. There he would test all manner of new substances concocted in CIA labs, 
including stink bombs, itching powder, sneezing powder, and powerful laxatives on unsuspecting Johns. White wasn't above a little freelance testing outside of the safe houses either. Wayne Ritchie, a deputy federal marshal, attended a Christmas party in the federal building where White worked. White secretly dosed Ritchie, who in turn grabbed two pistols from his work locker, walked to a bar, and attempted to rob the place. He was foiled when someone knocked him out with a chair. Ritchie could not explain his behavior that night. The judge who presided over his case showed leniency, citing Ritchie's record as a Marine and public servant. However, from that point on, Ritchie suffered from depression and never fully recovered. In 1963, the CIA's Inspector General, under direction from Central Intelligence Director J.S. Ehrman, began an audit of MKUltra. Once it was revealed that Gottlieb was conducting experiments on U.S. citizens without their consent, the program was shut down without ceremony. White retired from the Bureau of Narcotics in 1966. He and Albertine moved from San Francisco to Stinson Beach, where he took up the relatively easy position of Chief of the Stinson Beach Fire Department. Ever the aspiring writer, he worked on an autobiography titled A Diet of Danger which was never published. George Hunter White died at the age of 67 on October 23, 1975, from cirrhosis of the liver, the same disease that had claimed the life of singer Billie Holiday. Obituaries heralded White as a national hero, praising him for his acts of bravery in the face of danger in the name of national security. The timing of White's death saved him from the public relations crisis that would emerge when the press caught wind of MKUltra. There's little doubt, however, that he would have suffered from the same selective amnesia that Gottlieb and others involved in the project would experience when called to testify before Congress in hearings that took place in 1977. When posed with questions from lawmakers, for some strange reason, None of them could remember much about the clandestine, illegal experiments that the CIA conducted for a decade. So, Chris, what do you think about, like, these people didn't even know what LSD was or, you know, like, now, if you were dosed up, wouldn't you, you, you might have some kind of concept, you know, if everything's getting all freaky, you might think, oh, I've been drugged. And I mean, that would be scary in and of itself, but you might not think you're necessarily losing your mind. Um, but, yeah, what? Well, <laughs> these guys have any clue, these people that were being drugged? Did they have any clue what was happening to them? And how do you think that affected their mentality? Yeah, it would most likely be highly traumatic. In the 1950s, not many people knew that LSD existed or even what a psychedelic experience was. So they'd have no frame of reference for what was happening to them. And we're talking like pharmaceutical grade LSD here, not like some concoction somebody made in their bathtub. Strong acid trips often cause hallucinations, visual distortions of reality, 
you might see everything melting. You might see the person you're sitting with transform into a monster. Your thinking and judgment can be influenced. So you might become convinced that you're pregnant and you need to give birth to a child right away. That's actually a story I just saw uh, someone say on TikTok. <laughs> and they knew they were on psychedelics. So you can just imagine if you didn't know what, you know, LSD was. Plus, a strong LSD trip usually lasts about 7 to 10 hours, maybe longer, depending on the dosage. So, yeah. I can't imagine how terrifying that must have been for those people. Okay, well, that's it for this episode of CIA Files. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Uh, we'll have a headlines roundup next week, and then we'll be back in two weeks with the story of Antonio Vias Boas, a Brazilian farmer who may or may not have been the first person to be abducted by aliens and possibly the first person to get to try a topical version of ecstasy. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, follow. You know the drill. The more of that we get, the higher we show up in search results. Right now, yeah, we're still pretty low in those search results, so we need all the help we can get. It's good to have independent voices out there, so um, do us a solid and, and help us get get our names out yeah that really is a big help to us as we're you know getting the show up and running and i can personally promise you that the universe will reward you in some way uh, i don't i can't say what that reward will be or if you'll even notice it but i guarantee it will happen and be sure to follow those socials uh facebook at cia files and uh, on Twitter and Instagram, it's CIA Files Podcast. And of course, you can check our website for more information on George Hunter White and Operation Midnight Climax and where you can get all of our sources. That is CIAfiles.net. Yeah, we've got a pretty good um, episodes coming up about alien abductions and, and such. And it's, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. And especially because June 1st, the Pentagon is supposed to release their information that they have on extraterrestrials. So one of the questions we'll be kind of delving into is how much can we even believe it or believe them with what they do present? All right, everybody. Well, thanks again and stay safe out there.